This is In Hindsight, Half a Century of Research Discoveries in Canadian History, presented by Dr. Donald B. Smith and produced by the Ontario Historical Society. Great pleasure today to talk about episode nine, which is about Lord Barry, Lord Barry or Viscount, Viscount Barry, uh, uh, titled Englishman, who had a very extraordinary life, uh, particularly in his early days. And uh, that's what I'd like to tell you about. What is a special joy about this topic is this individual who long gone, of course, can be described in 3D dimensions because of a very abundant record. And that makes him a special treat. And for me, it's very important because he was Superintendent General of Indian Affairs for one year, uh, 1855. And it's very, very well documented, which allows great possibilities. So Lord Barry, begin. Lord Barry was 22 years old when he arrived in Quebec City in June of 1854. In those days, Canada was small. In fact, it was just what is now Ontario and Quebec. It was a political union called the Union of the Canadas. The capital was Quebec City at this point in 1854. It alternated between Toronto and Quebec City which tells you a bit about the relationship between French and English-speaking Canadians. They couldn't agree on a permanent capital until much later. Queen Victoria had to be called in for the decision, and in the late 1850s, Ottawa was chosen, and Ottawa became the capital in the 1860s. But at this point, in 1854, the capital is Quebec City. Quebec City was the second largest city in British North America. It had a population of fifty, about 50,000. The largest city was Montreal, way ahead of Toronto. Montreal had 80,000 people, Toronto about 35,000. So in terms of numbers, Montreal is tops, Quebec second, Toronto third. Who was Lord or Viscount Barry? Or to use his civil name, William Coutts Keppel. He was member of a well, aristocratic English family. They had their property, Quiddenham, uh, large estate in Norfolk, uh, northwest of London, on in East Anglia. And the family had quite a pedigree. It had been around for 200 years in the aristocratic circles. And Lord Barry. Let's keep with that name rather than the others. Lord Barry had a very privileged childhood. He was very well connected. His father's second cousin was Lord John Russell, a very prominent British politician and prime minister. In fact, as a young man, Lord Barry was his aide de camp, his assistant, the prime minister's assistant at about the age of about 20. What a beginning to life. And before that, he had a military career. He still did. He was still in the Scots Guards, very distinguished elite elite corps. Um, he was a Scots Guard and, and 
posted to the prime minister's office for a year or so. And uh, also um, on his way up still, I mean, he had connections. He was well-spoken. He was very articulate. He's a lot of fun too. He had great potential. And from the prime minister's office, he had another great opportunity. He was invited to become the aide-de-camp of the military governor of Bombay in India. Well, it tells you a bit about this young man's spirit. He had two options. He could go, well, he accepted, of course. He could go to India via the Red Sea route, or he decided instead he would go to India by from, from the Mediterranean by riding across, across Asia. Now, this got him in some difficulties now. He's, he's 20. Oh, gosh, he's 21 years old, and he's crossing the, the Ottoman Empire or Turkey. And uh, he got in some real trouble in Kurdistan because he was wearing a fez. And the Kurds thought he was a Turk, and they hated the Turks. So he was lucky to survive that section of his journey. Pushed on, went through... Um, well, the site of Babylon and down to down the Euphrates in a British uh, vessel, uh, a military vessel in, into the Persian Gulf, uh, went over to Muscat on the Bay of Oman, and it was from Muscat, uh, from Muscat that he went to in, that he took sea passage to India and arrived in Bombay. Now his good luck, which had been considerable up to this point, I mean he really. This prime minister's office appointment, uh, the, the appointment to the military governor's office in Bombay, and uh, also his time in the prime minister. I mean, just in, in the, he'd been in the Scotch Guards, an elite British military group. Um, this this is all very privileged, but his luck sort of fell apart in in Bombay because he got very ill, extremely ill, and uh, this career in British India, which he's looking forward to, um, he had to resign his post and return to England. But all was not lost because Lord Barry, Viscount Barry, William Coots Keppel, had important connections. Remember the prime minister, his second cousin, his dad's second cousin, and life was not going to be too tough because they came together with another option, and which he seized he was invited to go to Quebec City. And there, after several months, he arrives in the June 1854 and uh, stays at Lord Elgin's, the governor general's. That's Lord Elgin lived at Spencerwood, two miles west of Quebec, a, a nice state. And uh, that's where he lands at Lord Elgin's. Um, and uh, several early adventures. He's only in Canada a couple of months when Lord Elgin decides, wow, here's the man to be my civil secretary. The others, the previous occupant had had, had announced his, he was leaving and uh, Lord Elgin needed a, a civil secretary. Um, incidentally, the civil secretary, one of the jobs was to be the administrator of all the First Nations in the Union of the Canadas, that is present day Ontario and Quebec. We're talking here of 15,000 15, people. Well, he asked, Barry, and he accepts. Uh, quite, really, quite extraordinary because Barry's only been in Canada for a couple of months. And now he's in charge of 15,000 First Nations and he's only 22 years old. Well, this is the way it worked connections. But he was competent. 
Uh, another advantage, by the way, is he spoke very good French and the union of the Canadas is pretty well equally split between French and English speaking Canadians. So it's, it's a great advantage. And as I mentioned before, he is competent. So the first couple of months, but the first half year is pretty uneventful. He gets through quite well. His office incidentally is in Quebec city uh, on the Place d'Armes opposite what is now today, the shadow Frontenac, And I have a personal connection to where he worked. The Union Hotel was the, the that was a na- it was a hotel in those days, or uh, that's where the offices were of the Indian Department. And he worked there in 1854. I have a personal connection to it because it is located exactly between the Musée de Cire, the Wax Museum, and the Musée de Four. I worked at the Musée de Four for a week in the summer of well in June eight, uh, 1968, and I stayed for a week or so in the Wax Museum. I explain all that in episode two. So it's really a very close personal connection. His office, which is now the Quebec Tourist Bureau, wow, same building. Well, that's where he worked, and he as as, as all went fairly well at the beginning. Um, it's really not not too many. Uh, upsets. Um, he was very casual and, and uh, an endearing aspect of him. He insisted, people were calling him Viscount Lord and all this sort of thing. He insisted, no, just call me Bill. Well, Bill, fourth name for him, but let's keep with Lord Barry. Let's keep it very clear as, a, clear as possible. A scandal. This was a misstep. Uh, been in the job a couple months and uh, went on a steamer, a steamer voyage along the St. Lawrence. All was, all hell broke loose, broke loose when the, the rumor escaped that he had taken a loose woman into his compartment. Oh, this was, this was absolute scandal. Um, honestly, it, 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 St. Lawrence Steamer, and this kind of behavior, uh, the press divided on it. Uh, some were vehemently convinced that he'd done this evil act of taking a woman into his state stateroom, and uh, others stood by him. They believed him. He said that it wasn't there wasn't any hanky panky at all. In fact, this woman has and her maidservant they had not had a room, uh, and he he provided his room in order to save them the embarrassment of being out on the on the deck. Um, that was his explanation. He vociferously opposed these rumors, and a number of people stood by him. One of them was the Prime Minister of Canada's daughter, Sophia McNabb. She was convinced he was innocent. Now, enter Sophia. Sophia was an attractive, intelligent woman, fluent in French, a good dancer, well-educated. And her dad was the prime, a widower, was the prime minister of Canada. Sophia became his hostess. So very... It would be very easy for Lord Barry to know Sophia, and they met and and got along quite well. Well, with this this big uproar, Sophia is very much on her new friend's side, and this adversarial situation really positive being really helps their relationship. And Alan McNabb, Prime Minister of Canada, her dad, he likes them. 
He was an engaging fellow. Barry was witty. He was clever and great, great outdoorsman. All kinds of attributes that McNabb would have liked. So they get through the rough waters and they become ever more emotionally attached. In fact, to the stage, the events reach the stage that they're planning a wedding. <laughs> and, uh, and in the middle of November, 1855, in the McNabb family home, which is a like a baronial castle in Hamilton, it's called Dundurn Castle, huge, huge house. On November the 15th, 1855, they're married there. And that's the end of the scandal. Even uh, the big tempest in the teapot, this whether he'd taken the loose woman in his cabinet, in his stateroom or not, all that's it's forgotten. It's gone. Um, so if I had st stood by him and, well, they'd have a very happy marriage. They really would. What, what did. Um, now, I should have mentioned, just slip this out. In the text itself, all of this is, is certainly there, but I just momentarily missed. Um, Lloyd Berry had another embarrassing situation. This is shortly after uh, he arrived, and uh, Lord Elgin was leaving. And Lord Elgin, in the last months or so in Quebec City, in, in the fall of 1854, had wonderful parties. It was just, this was it. The The Top, top society of Quebec City would be at his parties. And um, there was a visitor, and, and this is precious because it's a, an account that uh, absolutely, it's just a miracle it survives. Uh, that is, Isabella Bird, an Englishwoman, daughter of a clergyman, a world traveler, she visited Quebec City and was present at the part one of the parties Elgin had in late October 1854. And this well-educated woman who wrote travel books all around the world. Her career went on for decades. This book of hers, it's entitled, uh, published memoir, The English Woman in America. She mentions Lord Barry's parties, uh, the one she attended, with glittering epaulets, scarlet uniforms, and muslin dresses, world before my dizzy eyes, she writes. But there is the published account. Now, this is where the discovery side of this series comes in. But there was more than the published account. There was her diary. And her diary surfaced. And thanks to the wonderful digital age, I was able to find the diary. In fact, I located the, the person in the United States that had it, who bought it from a book dealer. And she kindly has donated it to the Library and Archives Canada. Now, the diary, why is it so important? Because it's the unofficial version of what that party was. And suddenly, Isabella Bird, it notes, she notes the scandalous incident or scandalous scene that she saw. She writes in the diary, not in the published version, I saw Lord Barry sit for some time on the sofa with his arm round a young lady's waist. And this was by no means a solitary instance of impropriety. Isn't that precious? So there, he had a record. Lord Barry had a record. He was very popular with, with women. And um, maybe on that occasion, he went uh, he crossed, crossed the barrier. But anyways, Elizabeth Bird recorded it. Well, fast forward. Just... Sophia, uh, I don't know if that was Sophia, rather doubted. Who knows who it was? An unidentified, unidentified female. In any case, um, after the scandal on the steamer, Sophia stood by her new friend and uh, they married, and it really was 
a very successful wedding, despite rocky beginnings there. Let's get back to Natives, First Nations. I wanted to tell you, his record, I told you he was competent. He did one very good thing. He was he had absolutely no knowledge of Natives, uh, First Nations, Indigenous people, none. And uh, has all the regular stereotypes of the period and the, the, the before Christianity, the barbarians and all this sort of thing. And... Uh, uh, whatever, but he did one thing that was quite good. A, a book, a group of irate First Nations from the Saugeen Peninsula, the Bruce Peninsula, came to visit the Governor General in Quebec City. He would not see them. Didn't want to get involved, but Lord Barry did. He did see the delegation, and followed up on it and found uh, there was an irregularity in one of, in one of the, millions of irregularities, but this particular one was quite flagrant. Um, it involved a boundary adjustment and he made it. And that very much solved the situation. The um, First Nations in that area, because the settlement was made to their favor, a uh, modest one, mind you, but nevertheless, they, they were pacified. And so Lord Barry, it, that, that was a contribution. That's one. Uh, second contribution was, he was very, very, forthcoming in explaining what was happening to the First Nations. And in his final report in December of 1855, he pointed out that the First Nations were suffering terribly from the squatters who would just come and uh, just just come on their reserves. They weren't being properly protected. And then there were the timber thieves that would take timber off the reserves. So those two instances are evidence that he he was well, doing a good job, at least in alerting others to the injustices. However, he was a, and this is very important, I hope all these episodes somehow or other contain this element. He was a man of his times, and the times are not ours. He believed in the importance of residential schools, of Indian boarding schools, for the civilization of the First Nations. And we know Specifically, he visited one, perhaps others, but this one is recorded. This is the school outside of London, Ontario. At it's, it's, it's a residential school founded in the late 1840s, which is named after the Governor General, Lord Elgin. It's called the Mount Elgin Industrial School. And he visited that in the summer of 1855. Now, excuse me, I should point out, Lord Elgin had left in, uh, shortly after Barry arrives, and uh, he, uh, Barry had been appointed by the new governor general, Edmund Head. Elgin is no longer in Canada, but the school, of course, the name remains because it was named after him. He was present at the time. So Barry goes to the Lord Elgin School, visits it, and he likes it. He thinks it's doing a darn good job. It's terrific. He, he just finds that this is his ideal. He likes it. Well, I'll tell you why. He's a military man. And it's just like a barracks. It's like a military barracks. <laughs> All this discipline. This is the anathema of indigenous people, of First Nations people. This discipline and the harsh. Um, the, uh, the, he went to, Lord Barry went to Eton, where whippings were common. The discipline was rigid. And this is his ideal. And yet he's, and, and he sees this at the school. And so he thinks this is a positive. Of course, in hindsight, we know it was negative. It was awful. The TRC report gives us full details, the historical sections. Um, and so it's just a mis, it's just a misunderstanding. He thinks he's, this, this school is doing really well and um, all for it. Here's what he said. 
The former Etonian went on to add in his assessment, the, peoples, the pupils are generally intelligent, clean, and orderly. Some young men who have completed their course of education there are now perfectly ready and able to take their places as members of the general population. In short, Barry, well, don't, it's not just Barry, it's his non-Indigenous contemporaries, endorsed the idea of assimilation, known to many today as cultural genocide. Now, in hindsight, we know this is this was a catastrophic mistake. The results of the disastrous federal Indian residential school system are well known. But take things in context. This is how it looked to him from his background and looked to his, his, his contemporaries in the Canadas. And keep in mind, please, that the First Nations population was very small. In the Union of the Canadas, it was only about 1% of the total population one percent of the whole population of a million people of approximately a million people of European background. Okay, Mount Elgin. One final story, and that is a best missed opportunity. Peter Jones was very much alive still. He was not in good health, but he still was alive and still functioning, still chief of the First Nations, of the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation, uh, very highly respected by the, particularly by the Methodist First Nations community. And he was a very, there was a real potential there uh, the, uh, for, for something more. And the incident arose that the superintendent of Indian Affairs, the under Lord Barry, for Western on. Upper Canada, or Canada West, as it was called, the area from London to Sarnia, the superintendent there was caught in a gross scandal. He'd stolen, embezzled 7,000 pounds of the Indian Trust Fund. This was atrocious. So he's automatically sacked, and there has to be a replacement. At this point, Edgerton Ryerson, lifelong friend of, of Peter, Edgerton, in previous episode, he's been introduced. Uh, at this point, Edgerton is in charge of the Ontario school system, nothing to do with First Nations, but for the, the non-Indigenous people, he's in charge of the school system for Canada West or Upper Canada. And he writes a letter. He writes a letter to the, to first, uh, first to the Oliphant is his name, Lawrence Oliphant, who, who was the predecessor of Lord Barry as Superintendent General of Indian Affairs. He writes Oliphant, and then uh, after Oliphant's departure and Barry's apartment, he writes Barry to tell them that the ideal candidate is Peter Jones to become the new superintendent. <laughs> well, again, it's, it's Oliphant didn't follow up, and neither does Barry. Instead of, well, they're... Oh, rather obscure individual is appointed, but who's safe, non-Indigenous person, to become the superintendent of what is now uh, Western, uh, upper, what is West, Southwestern Ontario. It's a, it's a missed opportunity of the first degree. Okay. Back in England, Lord Barry leaves with Sophia back to England. And in England, he has a successful career. He's elected to Parliament. He later becomes a member of the House of Lords. In the House of Lords, he's the Under Secretary of War on two occasions. 
he has a prominent position in British politics, not as strong as it might have been, because unfortunately he's in, there's an accident um, uh, and he's he's injured uh, in late 1860s. It, it really slows him down, and uh, but he recovers. But nevertheless, it was uh, the military uh, accident was was a detrimental to his career. But nevertheless, he keeps that. Uh, he keeps writing. He wrote a mo monumental, a thousand page work called the Exodus of the Western Nations. That was came out in the 1860s, and um, he really was quite an extraordinary fellow with many interests. He wrote several articles on electricity and an essay on modern philosophy. He had a wide range of interests, and this was his big commercial success. This is very amusing. He co-authored a handbook on bicycling that came out in 1887, which enjoyed great commercial success, and it ran through five editions before his death in 1894. His family life was happy. Sophia and, and her husband had 10 children. Many descendants are in the UK today. One of them is Camilla. Yes, Camilla. <laughs> Camilla, wife of King Charles himself. Camilla is a descendant. Barry was so attached to his wife. On Easter Day, 1879, he converted to her church and became a Roman Catholic. It really was quite something. Well, all of this is quite an entertainment. This man was very, very interesting, three-dimensional, lots of uh, color, uh, really, truly uh, perfect for a novelist, wouldn't it be? And we have the records doesn't have to be a novel because we've got enough records. It's extraordinary. He did good things. He raised the alarm in his 1855 report of the of the rapacity of land squatters and timber robbers stealing, intruding on First Nations lands. But overall, and he helped with that, that territorial question, but overall there was a lost opportunity, and I mentioned it before. I'm going to come back to it. He passed over an opportunity to improve the status of the First Nations when he failed to appoint Peter Jones as Western Superintendent of Indian Affairs. And I'd just like to end this episode with this thought. I'm going to read it. It's from the text itself. This is how I end. Through his Mississauga mother, Peter Jones was directly linked to at least 10,000 years of occupancy in North America. While Vicont Barry could claim less than two years, and yet, this newcomer to Canada had become the senior administrator for all 15,000 Indians in the Union of the Canadas, while Peter Jones could not obtain even the position of Western Superintendent. The next episode will be on an individual, a politician, Lord Barry knew well in his early political career. That gentleman was John A. MacDonald. That will be our next episode.